Hi, this is Pastor John welcoming you to our broadcast. Today we start a new series in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're calling it Catching the Wind. It's all about finding the meaning of life. Uh, So it's an interesting book. There's a lot in here. And today we're going to learn that sometimes it's what you don't see in Scripture that might be the more profound lesson. At the end of the service, you've already heard this, but I'm going to just reemphasize it. The end of the service, if you're interested in Apollos, if you've uh, signed up for it, or if you have some questions, still want to know what it's all about, we're going to meet right over here. I won't keep you long. I promise I'll have you home by four or five. Yeah. Yeah. And we'd like to welcome the Fishers and the Hendersons back. Good to see you guys. Let's turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in verses uh, 1 through 11 today. Uh, It's gloomy out. It's windy. The clouds are in the sky. We can't see the sun. And I've got this encouraging passage for you here. (laughs) The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, But the sea's not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. I remember my college years, not too long ago, we would, when we were, when we weren't busy skipping class, we would go to the coffee shop, or we would sit around somebody's apartment uh, late into the night and have these incredibly deep discussions. You ever had one of those? You know, we, we had one guy that hung around with us, and uh, we'd, we'd get together, in particular if it was late at night, and he'd say, well, when are we going to have our meaning of life dialogue? That's what we were talking about. And, you know, we were young and excited and very, very wise in our own eyes. And we thought we we had the meaning of life. We came up with multiple different answers. But the question remains, when we're all done with all the discussions, when we left college, when we don't see each other anymore, we still didn't know what is the meaning of life. That's our question for today. Let me, let me talk to you about Ecclesiastes for just a second. Now, we'll get back to the meaning of life in just a little bit. 
But Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. Now, uh, we really need to be able to understand what genre of literature we're reading when we're reading the Bible so that we can understand it. Uh, There are three books that are generally considered wisdom literature, Job, uh, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Some people try to throw Psalms and Song of Solomon in there. It's okay. They can be considered wisdom literature as well. But wisdom literature is all about how the world functions. It deals with philosophical issues. It deals with moral issues, behavioral issues. It deals with the struggle of day-to-day life. Anybody understand what I'm saying here? Struggle of day-to-day life? I know you all have it easy. But it deals with day-to-day life and its challenges. And on some levels, frequently, it deals with doubts that we all have from time to time. Doubts that, and questions we have that we may be a little hesitant to voice because it just doesn't sound good to say that we're wondering about something we're not quite sure about. Wisdom literature dives into these things. should always be read in the context of eternity if we want to understand it. We have to have an eternal perspective if we're going to understand anything that wisdom literature says should always be tempered with what we know about God and what the rest of Scripture says. And for the most part, if we read this carefully, it can provide us with some practical, worldly wisdom, a way to deal with the real-world issues that we encounter as believers in the 21st century. One thing wisdom literature should never be taken as is a promise from God. They are not promises, never taken as a guarantee. Today, we would call wisdom literature street smarts, how we get along with those around us. Things that are mostly true, pretty much. And it it pretty much tells us if we live like this in this world, most likely this will be the outcome of our actions. If we do this, most likely that will happen. And let me give you a prime example of this, and we'll go back to Proverbs. And there's a familiar verse in Proverbs, chapter 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. This is not a guarantee that if we teach our kids Scripture, they're going to be saved. It's not a guarantee that if we treat our kids right, if we raise them correctly, then they're going to turn out the way we want them to. Can anybody say amen to that? It's not even a promise that our kids are going to be saved. That's really between them and God. What this verse says is that our children are more likely to walk the straight and narrow if that's what we teach them. But it's not a promise. There's another one in Proverbs 16, verse 7. When, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. I love this. Because we're called to be peacemakers, right? Okay. But we know, I mean, if we want to figure out what this really means, all we've got to do is read Paul's writings. We know that being a peacemaker, uh, righteous living doesn't guarantee that we're never going to have enemies. Paul had them left and right. People hated them. They wanted to kill them. 
But generally, righteous living will, will bring peace with those around us as a general rule, more so than leading an evil or an angry life. We know that to be true from Scripture as well. So wisdom literature shows us how life generally goes. It provides overall principles for navigating in the real world that we live in. And it's based on the simple truth that living a life, being familiar with God, having a relationship with him is better than living a life without him. That's what Ecclesiastes is. One gigantic generalization based on that simple premise that living with God is better than living without him. So what makes Ecclesiastes so incredible is that most of its material comes from the wisest, richest man who ever lived. He had everything. And when, when God said, what do you want? He said, I want to be able to lead your people well. God said, wow, that's a really good answer. <laughs> and because you answered that, I'm going to give you everything else. So we're talking about Solomon here. The teachings in this book are based on King Solomon. And if anybody would know how to navigate the, the, the ins and outs of the world, it would be him. If, if we're trying to figure out what the world has to offer us and whether or not what the world has, uh, has any value to us, King Solomon would know he had everything. Now, with that being said, the authorship of Ecclesiastes isn't... We, we don't know who wrote it. We assume that it's Solomon, but current thinking, and I have to agree with him, is that the author is teaching and analyzing the wisdom of Solomon, but he's doing it from a distance. So these first 11 verses that we're looking at today, um, uh, along with the closing passage, seem to be statements being made by a narrator or a teacher. He calls himself teacher prior to getting into his real lesson, which is about Solomon's wisdom. So th this book was probably written somewhere around the 3rd or 4th century. They know that because it uses language that would have been common to Judaism around the 3rd or 4th century, a particular dialect long after Solomon lived. And the book draws heavily from everything that Solomon taught by looking back at it and studying it in, in context and whether or not he was right about everything. So while Solomon was alive, and here's another one of the reasons we know this, while Solomon was alive, Israel was at its peak in, in its world influence. They, they were riding the crest of a wave. They were popular. Uh, they were rich. They were influential. The leaders were influential. And Ecclesiastes doesn't really have that feel to it. It's, it's subdued, in particular in its outlook about the world. In the third century, when this was probably written, Palestine, the, the promised land, was ruled by the Egyptians. And the Jews were being oppressed by the Egyptians. Now, we've got to be careful with understanding what that oppression looked like because it didn't look all that bad. It was a time of massive economic expansion. It was a time of incredible business opportunities. There were fortunes to be made left and right. And Israel was right in the crosshairs of all of the travel and trade in the world. 
So there was a lot of money floating around. So the cultural environment was one of oppression, but one of great material opportunities and great opportunities in commerce as well. But only if you're willing to live under oppressive leadership, high taxes, oops, and a world that worshiped themselves more than they worshiped God. Beginning to sound a little familiar? The intended recipients of this letter are the students of the man who calls himself teacher. They probably live in Jerusalem. They have access to the temple, have access to the resources. You'll see that as we go through the book. They, they are the up-and-coming generation of leaders and influencers. They're the next generation. They're greatly influenced by the world system in which they are living and they are operating in, maybe even seduced by the world system at least in danger of being seduced by it. So the teacher's going to use the wisdom of Solomon and all the lessons that he's learned to give caution to these affluent and influential men. He wants to warn them about the danger of putting too much emphasis on material positions and not enough on heavenly possessions. It's all about money and personal pleasure. So, to get this message across, the author uses a few words and phrases several times. We see uh, this word vanity in the entire book, and, and the, the book is actually beginning, the beginning and the end, the head and the tail. The book is bookended by the phrase vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's in verse 2 of chapter 1, and it's in verse 8 of chapter 12. So it kind of sets the theme for the, for the book. And in between those two phrases, our teacher searches for the meaning of life. And he asks, where can that meaning be found? And along the way, we're going to see this all is vanity 38 times in the book. 38 times. So what, is, what does vanity mean? What's he talking about here? Well, it's the Hebrew word hebel. Uh, easy definition, it means nothing. Uh, vapor, having no value. But the Jews, the Jews would see something a little bit different in this word. They would hear that the things of the world are overemphasized in their value, which is not much. And in Ecclesiastes, it applies not to everything. So we've got to be careful not to get literal on all this. In other words, the author is not saying life is futile and meaningless, but he is trying to say that life apart from God is meaningless. In particular, those things that he brings up in his book. They have no real value. So the way the author uses Hebel, vanity, in Ecclesiastes, is to contrast the things of God with the things of the world, to draw that line between them and compare their value. And I hope to be able to prove my point by the time we get to chapter 12. So, all is not hopeless. 
vanities there 38 times, but it is balanced by the word good or goodness, which is in there 51 times. And we, we also read that we should fear God six times throughout the book, where we read, fear God one more time at the end. We're encouraged to keep his commandments. So in a book that explores the meaning of life, could that be it? Could the meaning of life be wrapped up in fear God and obey his commandments? Could it be that simple? Let's see what the teacher and what Solomon have to say about it. So the title of our series lifted right from the book. Uh, the phrase that appears ten times, striving after the wind. I'm calling the series Catching the Wind. And this is part one. Our passage today is divided up into three evidences of what they call the madness of life. And the first one, the first evidence is no, has no purpose. Verses 1 through 7. Uh, verses 8 through 10, there's no new thing. And verses uh, 11 is there's no lasting honor, no lasting remembrance. So let's take a look at this, no purpose, starting with verse 1. The words of the preacher. Now, some translations say preacher, some translations say teacher. Uh, the, the, the name, uh, notice it is capitalized here. Uh, the Hebrew word is kohelet, uh, which means teacher or a collector, somebody who assembles things. Uh, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, we ought to be careful because as soon as we read that, we think, well, he's talking about Solomon. Solomon was David's son. But David had other sons in Solomon, didn't he? Uh, and the other thing is, you know, when we see son in the Old Testament in particular, it doesn't necessarily mean the, direct, the, the son of David. It means somebody who's descended from David. So the teacher is of David's lineage, And he says in verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So we set the tone for the book right there in verse 2, and he uses the word vanity five times in one verse. You think he's trying to tell us something? We got to remember, this is inspired by God. Yes, it's street marts. Yes, it is practical living, but it's inspired by the Holy Spirit for our edification and our nourishment. And so we start out with this idea of vanity. And we need to keep in mind that Colette is is drawing a contrast between the value of the material world and the value of the heavenly world, the value of eternity. We can see that he lumps everything that is not of God, that is not focused on God, giving glory to God as being worthless. All of it. Now, to understand that that's exactly what he's saying, we need to be able to harmonize this with the rest of Scripture. And we can find several passages that will harmonize it, but the, the one that I like is in 1 Corinthians, where Paul shows us that not everything is vanity, so that's why we're not taking this literally in verse 2. But in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So what we have in 1 Corinthians is the Greek translation of Hebel. So the works we do 
And the things that we accumulate for the sake of God, for the sake of gospel, are not without value. They are not vapor. And everything we do for ourselves is in vain. It has no value. So we need to be constantly checking our hearts. Why am I doing this? Who am I doing it for? And i got to tell you something. This is an incredible message for a culture that's living and thriving for uh, people who are prosperous, people who are enjoying all the comforts and all the joys of the world and all of its temptations. And we kind of see that reinforced in the next verse, verse 3 of Ecclesiastes 1. What does a man gain by all the toil of which he toils under the sun? He's not looking for an answer. It's a rhetorical question. So I don't want you to think about this. What did you get from all your work? Meant to be taken in the context of what our motivations are. Why do we do the things we do? What are we working for? What are we working towards? Where will the fruit of our labors wind up? What will they produce? And in particular, what will they produce if we're working apart from God? Well, we get our answer starting in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. Colette is describing creation. He's describing the world that we live in and how it functions. And sometimes that's mysteriously. Sometimes it doesn't look as though it makes a lot of sense. But what he's trying to tell us is that all that we do doesn't change any of it. Now, he's not trying to spark a a debate over climate change. What he's trying to say is, look at what you're doing and see the world around you and see if you're having any impact. The world keeps changing. It keeps spinning. Weather happens. Days come and they go. Generations pass. And all the things that we accumulate, the fruit of all of our works, the things we do, don't change a thing. Are you encouraged yet? Is that it? Is there no reason for being here? Well, there's a hidden message in here. Discreet in these verses. And in order to figure out what he's trying to say, sometimes we need to read scripture for what it doesn't say as much as for what it says. So what's not here? What what is what is not present in these verses? Then it gets to my main point. There's no mention of God. It's really not mentioned very much in the book at all. Certainly not in these opening verses. And the inference that the author wants us to pick up is that none of that means anything without God in the mix. We can't do anything of any value apart from him. Apart from him, there is no meaningful purpose. 
It's all vapor. It's temporary. Our first evidence of the madness of life without God is that life loses its meaning, loses its purpose. And on top of that, there's no new thing. Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. Oh, I love this. This is talking about what the teachers just described, a world running like clockwork, just working like a machine, relentlessly moving forward with no regard for its inhabitants, doing the same things over and over and over again, day in, day out. The word for weariness here can refer to something that's kind of monotonous. Never-ending, repeating itself over and over again. This is what the author calls life under the sun. This is life lived with a horizontal perspective, without regard for, for anything above us, with no transcendent nature, a world with no glorious intervention, with no glorious presence, nothing of any eternal value, Creation is intricate, he says, and it's complicated. It's beyond our grasp. It's beyond our control. It's beyond our full understanding. And the teacher characterizes our interaction with creation in three ways. He says a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear filled with hearing. We, we can't utter it. We can't explain it. We can't explain all of it. We're doing a better job today than we were 3,000 years ago, but we still don't get it. We can't see all of it. We, we can't even listen to all of it. Let me just talk about what we know about the world around us. What he's saying is that regardless of all of the new discoveries made by science, regardless of the technology that's... It, all around us that we're so totally immersed in, regardless of the telescopes and the, the labs and the research projects, uh, the explorations and all the inventions and everything that we've made in the history of mankind, verse 9 says, what has been is and what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's been already in the ages before us. Wow. I thought my iPhone was a new thing. We need to think about this for a second. We may think we find new things, but if you take a look at it objectively, all we really do is discover something that was already there. With all of our technology, all of our sophistication, all we ever really do is find things that are already there and rearrange them. <laughs> Isn't that true? We find things and rearrange them, things that God gave us a long time ago. So there are no new ideas, not really. All of our creative thinking is either done in trying to figure out how things work or trying to come up with some, something that feels fresh and unique. We may look into our telescopes and see the end of the universe 
Oh, we discovered a galaxy out there. God made it a long time ago. <laughs> we may look into our uh, electron microscopes and see these particles you can't see with the naked eye. They were already there. We may come up with a composition and we may take notes and scales and call it music. Just using the notes and scales that were already there. There's no new notes. No new scales. We may try to understand and explain physics. And we may get deeper in our understanding of it, but it doesn't change physics, does it? Only our understanding of it changes. So all of our efforts, all of our efforts to create will fall in one of only two categories. Either, listen carefully, either they will give glory to God or will give recognition to men. We're just rearranging deck chairs on the surface of a boat. Can't do anything really new. The second madness of life is that there's nothing new. Well, if that hasn't encouraged you enough, we can go to the fact that there's no lasting honor. Verse 11. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I don't like this. I, I don't like this verse. I want a legacy. I want a thousand years from now, somebody going, that John Kavakis was a great guy. See, that's me trying to get recognition. And this, this is telling us, well, well, that's not going to happen. It's not telling us not to have any sense of history. We should be learning from it. <laughs> We're in a day where that seems to have gone away. But we have a sense of history. The Bible's filled with history. It's not to say that we're not supposed to remember things and not supposed to remember people. But it does question whether our knowledge of history, whether our knowledge of, of human behavior changes everything. Do we live any differently because of what we know about history? Do any of us make an impression that lasts? And, and there's a tremendous irony here uh, because we don't really know who wrote this book. You know, we're reading it some 2,500, 3,000 years after it was written. We don't even know the author's name. We, we absolutely know nothing about him other than he calls himself a teacher. And he's kind of descended with David, but that's it. Here we are, absorbing his subject matter, trying to relate to it at some level, and our third evidence of the madness of life is that we think we can accomplish something so profound, so meaningful, that we will be remembered forever. No. No, we're not. Okay, let's pray and go home. <laughs> We've looked at this madness of life that has no purpose. Right there in the beginning, we see the results of omitting God 
from our life narrative. That's what's happened in the first 11 verses. God has been omitted. Everything becomes meaningless. Everything becomes vapor. There's no lasting purpose. And there's no new thing. There's nothing new. All we can ever hope to do is find some unique way to utilize what our world is made up of. You know, it's the old joke about science uh, advancing to the point to where they can create a man. And the scientist goes before God and he goes, I can create a better man than you can. And God said, okay, go ahead. So the scientist reaches down and picks up some dirt, and God goes, now, wait a minute, that's my dirt. Get your own dirt. That's all we can do. We can rearrange things around us, all we can ever hope to do, and maybe come up with something that's kind of refreshing. And our hope has to lie in something more than this. See, our hope needs to rely on something transcendent, Something bigger than us. Something with greater meaning than us. Something eternal. Lest we believe that we can do something important that will cause all future generations to remember us fondly, our teacher reminds us that there's no lasting honor. It's beautiful that we want to be remembered we want to leave a legacy. We want to leave something for those that come after us. The author may have thought he's giving us something to remember him by, but we don't. However, we do remember, watch this. We do remember his lesson. We do remember the word that God gave him. We remember what God wanted to tell us in this anonymous author's words. Inspired by God. Handed down to us so that we would remember not the teacher, but the God who gave him those words. Individuals, personalities, they're all fleeting. They're all temporary. But God, God promises us eternity. You see, if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if we've confessed our sins, called him Lord and Savior, we don't have to worry about being remembered. We're going to live forever. I'm going to go in heaven and go, oh, I don't remember who I was. <laughs> we don't have to worry about leaving a legacy. We have the legacy of Christ in us something bigger, something more profound than anything we could ever do. There they are. Here we got these 11 verses. Not one of them mentions God. And yet the message is loud and clear. Life is meaningless without God. So what did, what did I discover back in college, those late night, those late night dialogues, where we'd all shake our heads and just look off into the distance and go, wow, that's deep, man. We didn't discover anything. <laughs> we discovered nothing. But I have learned this since then. When Jesus comes into your life, it means everything. When Jesus comes into your life, life has purpose. It has focus. It, becomes, it has meaning. It becomes transcendent. 
We use that, we're using that word a lot. You're going to hear it a lot, there, but we're, t- we're talking about something much larger, much more profound and eternal than what we have here. God gives us eternity, something bigger than us, something that will last forever. And we can't get this. Here's the, the basic message of Ecclesiastes. We can't get that anywhere else. We can't get it from anything else, and we can't get it from anyone else. We can't get it from anything anyone else has ever done. We're not going to get it from our possessions. We're not going to get it from money. We're not going to get it by having a great reputation. All of that comes only with Jesus Christ. And that's how we're going to start our our study in Ecclesiastes. What happens when we don't have Christ? So get ready. We're going to have fun with this. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray that we don't have to search for meaning. We don't have to search for our purpose in life. You've already given us our marching orders, Father. We live for your glory, for your honor. Oh, Lord, mold us and shape us into a people that understand that completely. We confess, Father, that there are times when we look at the world around us and some of it looks pretty good. But your word tells us that one day everything around us will burn up and there will be a new creation and then we will have new glorified bodies. Father, we pray that you help us to keep focused on that, focused on eternity, not bothered by the temporal but consumed by the eternal. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Stand, please. Bow your heads. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Have a good morning. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week with the rest of chapter one and part of chapter two. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.